This is the Baymaw Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we walk through the second and third centuries of church history. Why are we so not Jewish in our Christian practice today? What happened to cause such a schism between Jews and Christians? Yeah, first little, our first real episode of getting into the meat of uh, session five here. And I, I, probably good just to, uh, hopefully everybody listened to our last episode. Uh, obviously, the idea, I would imagine everybody did. But uh, just some disclaimers that we gave there. Our goal here, like this is a session on church history, but our goal here is, again, not actually the church history. I'm not going to dive in deep to church history. I'm not an expert in church history. I don't. Ha- I don't have. I don't care about church history in the same way. What I care about personally, and what I think we care about here at Bema, is the Bible. I care about the Bible. I care about what God, what the narrative of God looks like, and what He's been calling us to do. Why church history is relevant is because I want to understand what happened. What happened to the Bible? What happened to us? What happened to us in the way we related to the Bible? Because I care about the Bible. So, again, like if you're really into church history, uh, you'll be frustrated throughout the session. That's okay. Um, There are lots of other great podcasts out there, I'm sure, that dive into that. We're taking, we're stepping way back. We're taking a 10,000-foot perspective. I will not be diving into the nuances. Uh, When I get to your pet period of history or your favorite topic or subject, or you will often be like, go into more detail, or it's far more complex or nuanced than that. And that's... That's certainly all true. I'm making some sweeping observations. I'm trying to take a huge sweeping look at what has happened throughout history. So quite frankly, Brent, you've been listening to some podcasts. You've been reading the same text that I used when I was in uh, college. You, you may actually be actually more studied and up on this stuff than I am. So you might hear Brent Billings actually chime in here and, and uh, correct me and give some thoughts on church history as we go through. It might be fun. Eh, we'll see about that. <laughs> I do have a question, though. Sure. As I was reading that uh, intro, we talk about a schism, and the Great Schism, capital G, capital S, I Correct. think typically refers to uh, the schism between the Western and Eastern Christian Church uh, much later. I don't know if we're going to talk about that, probably. Uh, but maybe maybe you would consider the um, Christian-Jewish schism uh, a greater schism? The Greater Schism. Uh, yeah, sure. I don't know. I've never even thought about that. Actually, church history will actually just add more fuel to an already confusing fire because church history is really convoluted when it comes to the schisms and what they use to refer to them as. There's the gate. There's the great schism. There's the east-west schism. Um, but the east-west schism is typically referring to a later schism, like the east-west of the Western world. So it's even more confusing. So there's already some schisms that are talked about. So it's it, it can be. We'll talk about all of them as we go through this session, but uh, at least at least the big ones. But yes, this one uh, is in my mind. I don't know if I'd say the most important, but as far as where my reference point is coming from, certainly the most important. This this schism here. It's a substantial moment in history, at the very least, without a doubt. And and maybe I would say the reason I I might not end up uh, piping in that much is that church history and history in general is just so vast and there's so much to know about it and we don't really want to make a three-hour podcast episode so yeah you either kind of dive all the way in or you just kind of take a wider look right or take an option b yeah for sure and and we do have some presentations so uh you can pull that up it won't be a whole bunch of slides but some timelines that uh, brent has created for us to kind of help us some disclaimers on those um Brent's going to do better than I did back in the past, but 
Um, these aren't meant to be like perfectly to scale. They're not meant like the points of the timeline are not necessarily like pos- perfectly positioned at just the right year. These are meant to like step back and, and be a visual aid for understanding the larger conversation. So these aren't like perfect timelines. That's not what their design is. Um, they're just visual aids to help us understand kind of like how the flow of history worked. Anything you would add to that, Brent? Uh, no. All right. Excellent. I, I look forward to uh, to revealing them to the listeners, though. <laughs> excellent. Well, with no further ado, here we go. We left off with that repeated question, what happened? Many students ask me this question, not just in reference to history of Christendom, but in reference to our Judaic roots. We come from an incredibly Jewish story following a Jewish rabbi and his Jewish Talmudim. How did we become so separated from our Jewish foundation? There are many in scholarship who weigh in on these big questions. They have their opinions. From a historically respectable perspective, I have found two opinions on this that I find plausible based on what we know today and what I understand. Uh, And one of those two plausible opinions I hold personally. Let's start with the one I don't hold personally, the first opinion is based on an understanding of a much uh, more defined schism between Jewish and Gentile church. And by that, we really mean, what do we mean there? What two characters did we speak of in session four, Brent? Paul and James. Yes, this this Jerusalem church of James kind of pushing against this Pauline expansion into the world of Asia and Asia Minor, a very Gentile world. Why Paul instead of John in this case? Uh, John, I think, would maybe represent that um, later, but John becomes pastor to Asia much later in history, maybe after this is so relevant, and the what feels like the tension. Um, I, I'm going to say the tension we see in the book of Acts at the Jerusalem Council is between Paul and James. And then New Testament scholars that are of a more liberal progressive stance um, are definitely going to say James and Paul were completely different churches. Like they're just different churches. And you can see that when you read your New Testament. I disagree, but that's that's their perspective. Okay. So definitely Paul and James. Uh, we, and we kind of referenced that before. We discussed it before. Um, back in session four, book of Acts, uh, kind of throughout. Um, so, I, and, and like I said, when we had those past discussions, I don't want to miss uh, the undeniable tension between the church in Jerusalem at the Jerusalem Council, the Church of Asia, uh, there's definitely a tension in the book of Acts, uh, undeniable. But I also hold to that same record in the book of Acts and believe that the apostolic leaders were able to come to an agreement and a mutual understanding led by the Holy Spirit. Uh, we called that, what do we call that process, Brent? Binding and loosing. Binding and loosing. Talked about that in session four. A process that I have heard about for many decades and uh, only recently feel like I kind of sort of have a grasp on it. Yeah, absolutely. So this, that, that, that's what my understanding was. But this, this opinion uh, from this school of scholarship believes that this Christian movement, which began in Jewish rank and order, was much more bent on the proclamation of their subversive gospel. And this created unwanted, especially in Asia, unwanted political tension. So if you remember, Brent, we talked about the Jewish exception, which was good for the Jew because it meant they didn't have to, uh, the Jew didn't have to worship the emperor. But that same Jewish exception, part of the deal was, was that it outlawed aggressive proselytization. Like they couldn't go out and evangelize the Jewish movement. They, they got some political breaks, but they weren't allowed to like go out and heavily recruit to their brotherhood. 
And so this new Jesus movement doesn't operate that way. Like they're heavily bent on invitation into this new world, this new reality. There's a new king and a new kingdom. And and this new kingdom is challenging. Just saying there's a new king and a new kingdom is challenging that status quo and upsetting the empire. This portion of Roman history was the height of Pax Romana. Absolutely. The, the world was Rome at this point. Absolutely. So this theory proposes the, that the Jewish religion jettisons its Jesus-following believers who are mostly Gentile in nature. So this, this Jesus movement within Judaism is causing all these problems because they're aggressive in their euangelion. And so Ju- Judaism says, you're going to get us in trouble, get out of here. That's, that's one plausible explanation. And, and there are certainly pieces in history to support that theory, uh, but I don't, I don't think that's actually what we see happening personally, and I've tried to make that clear throughout session four, uh, especially in light of, of recent scholarship. There's uh, the late David Flusser was one of my teacher's teachers. So Ray was taught by a lot of people. One of them, uh, Dave Flusser, he actually lived next door to Mr. Flusser, Dr. Flusser, for a long time. He suggested decades ago that early Christianity was predominantly a Jewish movement. Now, now Flusser is a Jewish scholar, not a follower of Jesus, not a believer in Jesus. Um, and he said that Christianity was predominantly a Jewish movement that didn't see um, uh, such internal tensions until much later. And, and one of the, that was not a popular opinion. Not in Judaism, not in Christian scholarship, just not a popular opinion. And one of the largest criticisms of his theory was the lack of evidence that Jews and Gentiles ever worshiped together. Like we just hadn't found any evidence that Jew and Gentile would ever worship together. However, in the last 20 years, as archaeological efforts have increased, especially in modern Turkey, the world of Asia and Asia Minor, uh, we, we are finding more and more evidence to suggest that Flusser was correct. You actually got to see some of these things when you went to Turkey. Yes, Brent? Yeah. I won't even show pictures because they're that cool. <laughs> but we found some pretty cool archaeological finds that showed that um, that Jew and Christian, uh, I shouldn't say it that way, that Jew and Gentile were worshiping together within the same fellowship and the same body. We also maybe won't show them because they're oftentimes very difficult to see. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, especially a in point. a two-dimensional image. Like yes. you kind of need to be able to be there and like kind of look around. Uh, oh, okay. I see it. I see it. Absolutely. But yeah, it's it's there. Absolutely. So come join us in Turkey. So that's that's one opinion. But instead, I cling to a different theory. I cling to a theory that the schism happened later, not with Paul and James, but later, just after the turn of the century, when Trajan and Hadrian, two different Roman emperors, they led some of the most aggressive, maybe not the most brutal, but definitely some of the most aggressive persecutions of the Jews. The Jews, mind you, not the Christians, but the Jews. Historians have long wondered why the largest of those persecutions seemed to have such a Jewish focus. The Jews weren't the largest imperial threat to Roman power. It would seem that the Christians were. And many have suggested, and in my opinion, rightly so, that the Christians were in fact so Jewish at that point that they were seen as an indistinguishable part of Judaism. So, so they were so Jewish that Rome just looked at them and went, 
That's a Jewish movement. Uh, even though they had Gentiles in it, that's a Jewish movement. This is a problem for Rome because they require not only worship and sacrifices to the emperor, but taxes. And then the Jews are exempt from this stuff with the Jewish exception. So if if the uh, if this Christian Judaism is sweeping through the empire and all of a sudden they're losing a whole bunch of their tax revenue, this is problems for them, right? Absolutely. And, and they weren't exempt from all Roman taxes. They were exempt from some because of the temple tax and they had some agreements at a different point in history. But there is absolutely... I, even even outside the taxes and the financial uh, relationship, um, this whole system runs on a certain level of imperial uh, commitment, uh, patriotism, uh, fear. It's empire, just like we talked about all the way back in session one. And so, um, yeah, there's this there's this definite. Uh, they need they need people to be bought into the Roman agenda. So when somebody comes in with a new gospel, a new euangelion, this is a major, major problem for Rome, not something they just ignore. So from what little pieces of history we do have, and though most of Judaism originally stood behind their Gentile converts, most Judaism, when the Gentiles were coming in, uh, in my opinion, in my opinion, uh, most Judaism stood behind their Gentile converts and the Theosebes, if you remember the Theosebes, what did that mean, Brent? God-fearing Gentiles. God-fearers, right? Uh, most Jews stood behind them. We did. We did hear about some exceptions when we studied the stand book. Stand behind, of, as in support, not stand behind, as in hide. Absolutely, absolutely. They were there to uh, embrace them into the family when Rome came knocking on their door, and the Jews said, "No, no, no, no. They're they're a part of this Jewish family. You can't touch them." They 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 supported them. Now we did hear about some that didn't when we studied about the the Book of Revelation. We heard about the synagogue of Satan. And I'm of the school of thought that believes that that was a group of Jews that actually did the exact opposite. That when Rome came by, they said, hey, these people aren't Jewish. They're Gentiles. Get them out of here. And um, that that would be the exception to the general historical rule, it would seem. So these same same Gentiles uh, seem to turn their backs on their Jewish brothers and sisters when Rome came looking to extinguish Judaism. Notice how that distinction between we're here to kill the Christians or we're here to kill the Jews from Rome, that distinction changes everything because the Gentiles choose to fall back on their uncircumcised roots. They essentially say, well, you're here for the Jews. Well, we're not Jewish and we got the foreskin to prove it. Like we're Gentiles. Uh, they they left their Jewish counterparts. They left them out to dry, created a, a, a schism that we have never uh, in the Jewish Gentile world, I don't believe we've ever healed. We've actually exacerbated it, but that's for the rest of session five to talk about. Following the Hadrianic persecution and the Bar Kokhba revolt, this helps explain why the writings of early church are so anti-Semitic in their teachings. Just one or two generations removed from the apostles, Brent, they're already super anti-Semitic. Like Irenaeus, one of the earliest, most respected church fathers, Irenaeus, somewhere late second century, is a disciple of the disciples, and he's already anti-Semitic in his writings, very, very vehemently against the Jews, and all kinds of people, by the way. Um, <laughs> Irenaeus is great, has a lot of wonderful things to contribute to church history, was horribly racist, uh, horribly exclusive. Uh, anyway, enough with that. Um, we'll just let that be because I just made every church historian major uh, very, very frustrated by that comment. But nevertheless, um, 
just my personal opinion. But the schism, uh, maybe we should put a link in there. Um, we talked about the Bar Kokhba revolt. Probably some people that don't know what that is. Brent, maybe you can do a Wikipedia link for the Bar, Bar Kokhba revolt so people can put that in their context of history. So this, this schism, this Jewish-Gentile schism, will have more than relational implications. Uh, it's not just that it hurt relationships. Now that the Jews are gone, this Jesus-following body, listen, has lost their connection to the what, Brent? To the text. They've lost their connection to the text. They no longer have walking libraries of Torah and the Jewish narrative to teach and lead them. We talked about this kind of like with Romans. Like, what would it be like to have all the Jews just leave, and now you got to figure out how to do this thing as Gentiles? We're, we're a, a good millennia, millennium uh, away from the printing press at this point. Absolutely. You don't, you don't, you don't just get to look it up. There's no Bible gateway. There's no Bible. There's just no Bible. <laughs> it's all supposed to be uh, in your head. So the moment that this anchor, this Jewish anchor was pulled up, Gentiles were left to lean on the only thing that they knew intimately. And unfortunately, the worldview that dominated the Hellenistic culture was Gnosticism. And you, you, you may want to review maybe our discussion on the book of Colossians. We talked about Gnosticism. Now, like I mentioned a few episodes ago, I have recently discovered that we are learning a lot about Gnosticism. Um, even things that uh, scholars have taught very recently, people like N.T. Wright, we're discovering maybe there's more to the conversation. We've talked about this before. We're always going to be learning new things. We're always going to do the best with what we have on the table. And then 400 years from now, we're going to know things that we didn't know before. And you're going to look back and we're going to think, oh man, how stupid were we? But that we, we only can do the best that we can do with what we have. So we're learning more and more about Gnosticism. So I'm going to try not to make too big of a deal about this because I don't want to overstate some things that maybe we'll find out we're different. But Gnosticism is definitely running rampant. And there are definitely some negative attributes to Gnosticism. Maybe we've overplayed some of those things, but, but the dualistic nature of Gnosticism. And maybe we shouldn't call it Gnosticism. Maybe we should just refer to the dualism, the separation of spirit and soil, of body and spirit, this separation of all things spiritual are good, all things physical are bad, this docetism, this dualism, this is running rampant, and that's, that is the that's the second language of the Gentile. And so if you lose Torah and you have, to, you have to think about and talk about God, you're going to do it in ways that you're familiar with because you've just lost the Torah and the Jewish narrative that used to be your identity. So this conflicting worldview led to all kinds of corrupted teachings and beliefs. Uh, and we can even assume uh, that we have the presence of the New Testament writings. We can assume that we have things like the Didache. We're going to put another link in the show notes about the Didache, um, which is a piece of uh, early church writing. It's essentially the early church's manual uh, for passing on the apostles' teaching uh, to new converts. All right. So we even have some pieces of writing. And yet, even in spite of all that, almost immediately, there were arguments for the rejections of different writings. A man by the name of Marcion was arguing for the rejection of the Tanakh and most of the Gospels. He did have a full acceptance of the letters from Paul, uh, most of the Gospel of Luke, and maybe a, a few other letters there that we have in our New Testament. But, but he rejected Tanakh. He rejected Matthew, Mark, John, almost in entirety, and, and accepted Paul and Luke. 
Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because much of evangelical Christianity continues to approach the New Testament in the same way. Like, what is it that we focus on? Who, is, who have we pointed out before, Brent, when we, when we read the New Testament? Like, what writings do we gravitate towards? We absolutely gravitate towards Paul. Oh, we just love Paul. Jesus is kind of hard to understand, but Paul we love. And what's the part, whole part of the book? Everybody that comes up to us with Bema, they always have to tell us, oh, man, you've just made the whole what part of the Bible come alive to me? The Old Testament. The Old Testament, because we don't talk about the Old Testament. So it's interesting. Marcion was eventually declared a heretic. And his arguments were completely rejected by Christianity. Um, but it's interesting today that we actually still have a very Marcion-like view and approach to the scripture and to theology. Uh, and I don't know if that goes all the way back and is tied directly to Marcion or is just a really horrible coincidence. But we definitely, it's so funny that we talk about how Marcion was a heretic, and yet we really approach the Bible in many of the same ways, rejecting the Old Testament, um, maybe having a pet gospel, but just really elevating the teachings of Paul. Um, that, that was heresy for the early Christians. But th- this whole uh, interaction with Marcion and his arguments, his heresy, brought up the need for this Gentile movement to declare which teachings would be authoritative, which books belong in the Bible. And the movement, uh, this Christian movement was able to move forward from that. From, from there, we received what's known as the Muratorian Canon. It was actually a long process. It didn't just show up after that conversation. But through the processes that followed, we ended up with the Muratorian Canon, which is basically um, what is your, your New Testament? Uh, your New Testament, your Bible is based on the, uh, this canon had only 22 of the 27 letters in it. Um, and the larger conversation surrounding it would later lead to the reordering of the Hebrew scriptures that we've talked about before, back in session one and two, uh, for Christians. Uh, it, had, it had an undeniable anti-Semitic bent to it. Um, so eventually this Muratorian canon would grow. It would, it would, they would add some of those extra books that it didn't have to begin with. But that Muratorian canon is really the Bible. It's, it's the basis of the Bible that you and I use today. This unfortunate new world where Jew and Gentile were split apart, this schism, it would have brought other issues uh, to the table uh, had the Gentile Christian movement uh, not been at odds with the, with the empire of, of Rome. Like this probably would have spun out of control even quicker, Brent, if it hadn't have been for they were running for their lives. They were simply trying to survive at this point. Rome is out to extinguish the Christian movement. And so it kind of keeps what could have even spun even further out of control, kind of keeps that spiraling out of control at bay. Uh, As they continued to deal with the persecution that came and left and came and left, they were forced to bind together and cling to the essentials for the survival of their faith. It is a dark, uh, it's a dark shame that we weren't able to do this with the company and the leadership provided by our Jewish brothers and sisters. We will be left to wonder what could have been. Would the age to come, Olam Chava, remember in our last episode, Brent, I suggested that Jesus was going to come back, like his return was imminent, and God was waiting for us to speed up the coming of Christ, and then I said something happened. This is that something that I believe happened. I do believe Jesus was maybe on the doorstep. Is it, is it time, Dad? Is it time? Is it time for me to come back? Is it time? And then... And then this thing kind of spun out of control. If we would have not separated from our Jewish roots, would would the age to come have arrived and Jesus' return been realized just as the writers of the New Testament were claiming? Maybe so. For now, they run for their lives, these early Christians. 
They stand and they die. But it's all about to change. And that is what will send us into the next episode, Brent. So we just covered AD 100 to 300. Yep. Absolutely. A lot of what we talked about was uh, in the earlier part of that period. Yeah, but... early 2nd century. Right in the, I don't know, 1, 114 to 117. In the years that follow right after that, that's going to be the 120. That window there of 114 to 120, that's where the Trajan, Hadrian, persecution, all that stuff kind of rolls out. The world is changing and Jew and Gentile kind of get torn apart. We don't really have much on our uh, on our chart for the 3rd century, but... Uh, you can you can be sure that it was a tough time. To... Just yeah, up and down. Like one emperor saying, it's just like Republicans and Democrats and the way that we go back and forth in our own culture. You'd have an emperor that would come to power and say, "I'm going to destroy this group of people." In the same way that some uh, some of our political discourse talks about immigrants or or you know outsiders or Muslims or we have these discourses that just those people. That's the problem. And then you have some people that come, and the, the Roman Empire did the same thing. We're going to embrace this. We're going to accept this. We're going to move forward together. Some emperors would say, no, we're going to crush this. We're going to destroy this. We're going to exterminate this. And that third century was just constant ups and downs of, okay, we can breathe. Okay, we need to run. Yeah, and then in a general macro sense, the Roman Empire in the third century was kind of struggling. So the Absolutely. those persecutions were... Um, you know, a, a way for them to, to deal with their problems. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, it was absolutely a scapegoat, a scapegoat to what's going wrong, and it became easy to point the finger. Luckily, we don't do that today, so it's a wonderful. We've so far evolved from those kind of silly, petty scapegoating techniques. Perfect. <laughs> All right, well, we will pick up in the next episode, starting with 8300. So thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.